Happy Halloween, everybody. Now, this episode is a little extra scary, and so I wanted to put an extra warning at the beginning of it. Uh, some people might find it disturbing, and perhaps I've got one toe just over the line of my usual boundaries. Uh, this episode does feature a scene near the end uh, in which children are shown to be held captive and one of them undergoes a procedure in which blood is drawn from them while they're in a kind of trance or a catatonic state. Um, sorry for the spoiler, but I thought that it was better to uh, mention it now rather than have somebody hear it who didn't want to. If you think that this kind of scene is not for you, then when you hear this music, well, that's the time to stop the episode and just catch up on the rest of the plot on the next episode's last time on Recap. Whether you listen all the way through or partway through, I hope you enjoy this very special Halloween episode entitled Night Mother. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. At the beginning of Chapter 11, Yellowfly has just cleared his name and is back in the good graces of Lord Rabbit and the Church. Could it be that his bad luck streak has finally ended? In the morning, he shares the good news of his redemption, but also some bad news. Captains Bellic and Sindwan appear to have been reconciled. Together, they're sure to cause real trouble for the church. Yellowfly then produces the cipher, which they now know Catsbane can read using magic. Catsbane does so, employing a particularly odd spell that temporarily surrenders part of his physical body to an extraplanar creature. He learns the name of the woman who attacked him at the safe house, Romella. He also finds the word Iron Wolf and thinks it might be a code name or password. Finally, he identifies a suspicious list of deliveries made by Nobray. These deliveries were made to a sawmill in Mirpool. This strikes the companions as something worthy of investigating. In a pair of cutaway scenes, we revisit Brother Ligo and the lovely novice, Sivan, as they prowl around in the basement of the Church of the Sacred Flame. When Sivan learns that Brother Ligo doesn't have the key to the secret passage he has shown her, she drops him and turns her attention to another priest, who does. The second cutaway introduces us to Carrick Melmar, the Basilisk of Whitestone Castle, and Catsbane's former absentee master. He's been trying to open a wizard-locked door for over a year, without success. But he won't give up. The door stands between him and what promises to be the greatest discovery of his life. Chapter 12, Part 1, Day 49, Morning, Party Status, Yellowfly, 15 of 15 hit points, Tamlin, 7 of 7, Cole, 8 
of eight. Shawnee, eight of eight. Catsbane, four of four. Spells available. Tamlin has prayed for cure light wounds. Catsbane has memorized read languages. The key is not to dig in too deeply. Shawnee was teaching her companions how to make loaded dice. First, you auger out the single pip on the one side of each die. Then you put in the weight. A little lead ball works best. Next comes the glue mashed up with sawdust. Tamp it in good with a dowel or a stick or whatever. Then when it dries, you just repaint the pip. Sometimes you have to repaint all the pips if the paint doesn't match. They were on the road to Mirpool. It was a scenic path that led below the sheer castle cliffs and then followed the gentle curve of the lake shore. Gulls wheeled in the air over the dimpled surface of the water, every so often plunging down to snatch up a minnow. The enormous blue heron lake teemed with all kinds of freshwater fish. Hundreds of stickleback, trout, walleye, and grayling were all pulled into Camertinian fishing nets daily. All fishing took place in the smaller satellite towns, away from the castle cliff, which overhung an array of sunken and nearly invisible rocks that made the use of boats dangerous. It would make for an impressive natural defense if the capital were ever to be attacked by an enemy navy. After Shawnee's dice-loading tutorial, the companions walked on away in silence, each of them lost in their own thoughts. Yellowfly had earlier relayed most of the highlights of his second evening with Lord Rabbit. This time, their meeting had been less celebratory and had taken a more serious tone. As a result, Yellowfly was gratefully not hungover. The two men had discussed Bellic's city map, the one with the miniature soldiers and iron rings marking key locations. For Bellic to have recognized them as locations of importance, he must have either been investigating them or else had already been corrupted and was now in the Weeping Eye's pocket. Because of the way the church was structured, with the identities of most members unknown except to those directly above or below, Lord Rabbit had not been able to make the connection between the Rosedale location and the assassinated top-ranking church member, Gamaluna. Similarly, the reason for the Church of the Sacred Flame to be marked was a mystery, but Bellic's marking of the warehouse was interesting. Had he known they planned to set it on fire? That seemed impossible. Only a very few people had known the details of that job. More likely, the warehouse had a higher function for the Winks than they had been aware of. Perhaps it had been a meeting spot, or a dead drop. That would explain the presence of an armed guard in an empty room. The churches having chosen it for their distraction had probably been sure good luck. Lord Rabbit had laughed that the Winks probably gave them more credit for knowing their business than they deserved. The other item of business on the table was the decoded cipher. Unfortunately, Lord Rabbit did not know the name Romola, nor did the word Iron Wolf mean anything to him. None of their puzzle pieces fit together. They needed more information. That's why Yellowfly's gang had been sent to investigate the sawmill in Mirpool. Lord Rabbit agreed that it was indeed suspicious for Nobray to make deliveries, someplace not only far away from his home, but also, if Yellowfly was correct, not even in use. He also said it was not such a terrible thing for us to be out of the city a little longer, said their leader. This might have been an overabundance of caution on Lord Rabbit's part. The heat from the warehouse and tower missions had cooled off considerably by now. Even Catsbane's wanted posters had been replaced with others, seeking fresher bounties. Cole was just happy to finally be active again. Plus, he had never been to Mirpool and was excited to see the place. You've been there before, Yellowfly, right? Asked the big man. Yes, many, many times, Cole. I've heard they have a statue of Aylward in the center of town. Fifteen feet high in white marble. Indeed they do. The Silverthorn himself. Although I don't think it's quite fifteen feet. All the same, I should enjoy seeing the face of a real paladin. Greatest hero Camatine has ever known, they say. Aye, 
The man who slew the tyrant, Vincis, a true hero of the people. Cole may not be a hero yet, and he certainly isn't anything approaching a paladin, but the Young Fighter's Day has finally arrived. Today he achieves level 2. Let's get some dice and see how this Young Fighter improves. Okay, I've got a nice pearlescent dark blue d8 to roll for new hit points. The roll. Sadly, I have a 3. This gets bumped up to a 4 because of my house rule to min out at half hit points. He goes from 8 to 12. Well, that is not very impressive, is it? Maybe I'll have better luck with stat increases. I'll use a d6 from this same blue set. Strength. Cole already has an impressive 16 in this stat, but a 6 here would be amazing. I've got a 4. Intelligence. A 1. Wisdom. Another 1. Uh-oh, this is starting to feel like it might be a dud. Dexterity. Yet another 1. Constitution. And another. That's four 1s in a row. Did Shawnee tamper with this die? What's going on? Charisma. This is the last chance for some good news. The roll. <laughs> Can you guess? Another one. I know what the dice gods are trying to tell me, although I don't think they need to make their point so rudely. Cole has spent the last month or so resting in bed, and he hasn't grown as much as he might have from recent experience. Well, you know what they say. You win some, and Shawnee tampers with the rest. Now, you might be wondering about Cat's Bane. Does he level up today, too? Well, not just yet. He needs to survive one more episode. This one. And then he can level up next time. Alright, I think the PCs will be in Mirpool by now. Let's check back in with them. I don't know if you've noticed, but the followers of Sidal were not subtle with their art, were they? Remarked Tamlin. The statue of Aelward, the paladin, dominated the center square of Mirpool. It was made of white stone, as Cole had heard, but it wasn't marble. The oranges and purples of the sunset bled into each other behind it, giving it a dreamlike quality. Yellowfly's memory of it proved to be flawed. It really was fifteen feet tall, maybe taller. Including the plinth, it stood as tall as the church behind it. Had he ever really appreciated it before? Perhaps he had seen it so many times when he used to come here for business that he had taken it for granted. He had to admit, it was magnificent. The round and domed stone church of Sidal was equally impressive. The old religion still had many followers here. If there was one place in Camertine where the old ways prevailed, it was Mirpool. In front of the church gates, a short, paunchy man of middle years was hawking prayer beads. Although he had not a single customer, a number of local children were gathered around him, laughing at some story or joke he must have been entertaining them with. Yellowfly and the others continued to admire the sculpture until the sun fully set and the town square grew dark. He led them to a nearby inn called the Turning Bull, and the sign above the door showed one of the animals twisted about with its horns low and one hoof in the air, as if about to charge the onlooker. The owner, an elderly woman named Dawn, liked to joke by pointing at the sign and declaring that, at the Turning Bull, the charge was always low. Inside, Yellowfly and Dawn made small talk. They knew each other from back when he used to work as a fishmonger. She chided him for not having visited her in years. She asked about his parents' health, and he wanted to know how her children were getting on. He paid her two gold pieces for a pair of rooms, collected the keys, and, after they'd locked away their belongings, took his companions out to a tavern for drinks. When they each had a pint of ale in their hand, Yellowfly made a toast to the success of their mission, and then told them the true story of Aelward, the Silverthorn. Here's to us seeing things a little more clearly tomorrow, he said. They all lifted their cups and drank deeply. After a long day on the road, the ale was most welcome. 
Now, my friends, things are not always as they appear. You might hate Colfrey as I do, but he isn't the only tyrant to have sat the throne, nor the worst. King Vincis will forever be remembered for that. His atrocities were without number. But, you know, the gods have a sense of humor. The great cathedral in Silmoro was built 200 years ago. It was originally a church of Sadal. Did you know that? Hmm. Somehow the histories have forgotten that small detail. People will often believe whatever they're told. Anyway, the great cathedral of Sadal produced the paladin who eventually slew Vincis. Genhard's records have not undergone the kind of rewriting the official church histories have. When Vincis gained the throne, he was something of a folk hero. The Zacian puppet had ruled and it was Vincis who overthrew her. But he did not do it alone. There were three of them. Vincis was the warrior, Denor, the wizard, and Yumuya, the spymaster. The three of them seemed to disappear after they deposed the queen. No one knows where they went, though rumor tells of a ruin under Whitestone Castle, and it is said they were there. When they were next seen, they were changed. It was as though their hearts had been replaced by stones. That's how Genhart describes it in his chronicles. Replaced by stones. A reign of terror ensued that lasted twenty years, until finally Elward forced his way into the castle and slew them all in the name of Sadal. At this point, Camatine was like a land under a curse. Crops would not grow. There was a famine. It was a barren land. All this changes with the death of Vincis and his followers. Jinnard says the land was reborn and once again, the sun shone on Camertine. Tomorrow we'll get an early start, eh? The sawmill is just a little out of town, not far from the swamplands. We should be there well before noon and have plenty of time to look around. At the next table over, the short, punchy man who had been selling prayer beads sat alone, quietly sipping at a cup of ale and listening very carefully to their conversation. Hey, I'm Tim. And I'm Mike. And we are The Watchers on the Couch, a television show discussion podcast that doesn't take itself or the shows we watch too seriously. A recap and review show that is for immature, mature audiences only. No offense, but what the f*** does that mean? Well, that means in addition to recapping and discussing shows like Game of Thrones, His Dark Materials, and Westworld, we ask the questions that are lurking in the deep recesses of your mind. The ones you can't bring up at the office water cooler. Like, how does Daenerys know that all her dragons are boy dragons? Those are the only genitals we never see on Game of Thrones. We release new episodes weekly, usually on Wednesdays. Sort of depends on the show we're covering at the time. Watchers on the Couch is completely free to listen to and available on any app that supports podcasts and on YouTube. No, but seriously, we saw those dragons flying from all angles and there's never any dangly bits. Well, maybe it's like a turtle's head. I mean, The Hobbit would have been a way different story if Bart the Bowman could have just shot Smog in his dick. Chapter 12 Part 2 Day 50 Late morning Party status The party status is unchanged. The autumn mornings had grown chilly, and so the companions wore woolen cloaks over their armor. They carried their weapons at their sides, not bothering to hide them. There was no prohibition against bearing arms in Mirpool, as there was in the capital. The folk who lived here followed the old ways, and it was common to see people with a scabbarded blade at their hip, or a hand axe tucked into their belt. Yellowfly led his party out of town and past the surrounding farmlands, where they grew crops of corn, barley, and hay, 
and also raised domestic animals such as horses, sheep, and cattle. Once the farms were at their backs, he took them up and into a woody hillside with an overgrown path cross-hatched through the roots and stippled with mossy rocks. The path traced a winding route to the summit over a forest floor that was soft and springy with fallen leaves and needles. As noon approached, they came to a spot where there had once been a modest river. It was little more than a creek now. Following it eventually brought them to their destination. The sawmill consisted of a stone foundation supporting an open-air scaffold. Its water wheel was stuck uselessly in the riverbed and wore a gown of accumulated mud and sediment. Clearly, it had not turned in many years. The mill was likely a hundred years old, unused for half that time. It looked somehow forlorn, and a sense of gloom hung about it like shadows. The main saw blade, orange and brown with rust, still stood upright in its harness. A second blade, likewise corroded beyond use, leaned in a pit near the foundation where the sawyers had abandoned it. For some reason, Yellowfly found himself drawing his sword as they drew closer. This caused his companions to slow down with their hands drifting towards their own weapons. There were two ways up to the platform. On one side was a mossy ramp, and on the other a set of stairs. The stairs looked more stable, so he headed for them. He climbed the steps slowly, looking around for any signs of danger. There was a bulging gray wasp's nest stuck to one of the rafters, and some of the insects could be seen crawling across it. Each one was an inch long, and Yellowfly gave it a wide berth when he reached the platform. For now, the wasps paid him no mind. He continued to survey the area. There were still logs piled here, long rotten and never to be turned into lumber. Something else caught his eye. A hatch with access to the foundation's interior, where he knew he would find the inner gears of the mill that transferred the rotation of the water wheel into the reciprocating motion of the straight main blade, or at least it would have if there had been any water to power it. There was a padlock on the hatch, but Yellowfly had come prepared this time. He sheathed his sword and pulled a hammer and chisel from his pack. Shawnee was already up the steps. She addressed him while keeping one eye on the wasp's nest. Wait, she said. Let me try first. It'll be quieter. This made good sense, so Yellowfly nodded to her and she crouched down with her tools to make the attempt. According to the BX rules, a level 2 thief like Shawnee has just a 20% chance of success when attempting to pick a lock. Those are not great odds, but if she fails, Yellowfly has a backup plan. Shawnee needs to roll low on this one. Here goes. <laughs> 26. Oh, so close. But almost succeeded is failed. It looks like Yellowfly will need to use his hammer and chisel after all. Now, there's a price to be paid for Shawnee's failure, and that price is twofold. First, there's going to be a 1 in 6 chance that the wasp's nest is disturbed. And, second, if that check is passed, another 1 in 6 chance that wandering monsters will be attracted to the sound. If the first roll is a 1, that'll mean the wasps do become hostile, but I will not roll a second check. In other words, only one bad result can happen, not both. Here's the check for the wasps. Looking for anything on a d6 other than a 1. The roll. A 4. That's a good start. Now I'm going to roll again. If I get a 1 on this roll, I'll need to consult a wandering monster's table. Here's the second roll. A 2.
The padlock fell to the side as the hammer strike echoes receded deep into the hilly woods. Nobody moved a muscle. After a few moments, the birdsong returned and the tension subsided. Yellowfly let out his breath slowly and shared a look of relief with Shawnee, who bounced her eyebrows and then stood, motioning for the other men to join them on the platform. As they ascended the short flight of stairs, Yellowfly grabbed the ring of the hatch and heaved it open. The wood groaned in defiance and lifted to reveal another set of stairs, this one made of the same stone as the rest of the foundation. We'll want some light, said Yellowfly. There isn't going to be much room in here, but it'll be plenty dark, and we'll want to search it very carefully. All right, here we go, said Yellowfly. Tam, will you give us a light? Shawnee and Catsbane, you're on guard duty. Cole, you'll write to come with me. You don't even have to ask, Fly, said the big man, pulling a hand axe from his belt. Yellowfly also kept his sword in its scabbard and instead drew a dagger. Tam had his tinderbox out and presently lit a torch. I'll go right, you go left, said Yellowfly, taking the stone stairs and disappearing into the darkness below the platform. Cole followed, and Tam tried to shine as much light as possible inside. Fly, said Cole after a few minutes. Hold on, I think I've got something, returned the other man. He had seen a crack of light in the foundation and suspected it would make a good hiding place. Fly, I've got... Hold on, Cole. Damn it, Tam, can you get a little more light in here? Tam shoved the torch in deeper, catching Cole's exasperated face, where he stood by the elbow of gears, taking up space in the middle of the area. He shrugged. Ah, yes, that's good. Hold the torch there. No, don't move. He put his fingers into the fissure and felt around. It was a large crack. He could have put his whole hand through and waved it up and down, but he found nothing within. Fly, said Cole a third time. Yes, what is it, Cole? Yellowfly sounded equally annoyed. Is it normal for there to be a shaft leading into the ground in a place like this? A what? A shaft leading down with iron ladder rungs on one side? No, Cole, that's not normal for a place like this. He couldn't see it in the dark, but Cole was smiling. Chapter 12 Part 3 Day 50 Noon. You did well to share this news with me, child. They are fated foes to you. I have seen it in the waters. Nightmother always spoke with this strange cadence, and she also always called her child, even though Romola was now somewhere in her fifties. She didn't know exactly how old she was. She still wore the livery of a monk, but she had removed the glamour that changed her face so dramatically, and to a lesser extent, her body. Gone was the paunchy potbelly, and back was the sagging bosom. She had been lucky to have seen them, although from her spot in front of the church where she sold beads and beguiled the local children, she saw most everyone who came and went from Mirpool. She didn't earn enough to survive selling prayer beads to superstitious simpletons, but she didn't need the money. She only maintained the facade of a business in order to justify her presence, and besides, everyone felt comfortable letting her speak to their children when she was in the skin of Friar Darman the Pious. When they had first met, the Knight Mother had been a crone, decrepit, barely able to walk. Now, owing to Romola's efforts, she was much stronger and could move about on her own with a cane. Presently, the old woman rose from her chair, holding onto the table for support, and hobbled to the door of her little wooden hut. She opened it to the sounds and smells of the swamp. 
Her home somehow managed not to sink into it, whether by clever design or by some magical force. Romola had spent so much time here that she never really thought about it. We will send a demon bird to sing a song for them, said Night Mother. Fetch some blood and bring a blackwing egg. Fetching blood really meant drawing blood. Romola selected a sharp knife from the table and took the rickety stairs into the basement of the hut. Here, in the cloying gloom, were four small cages. All of them were occupied. Two boys and two girls. Both of the girls were from Mirpool. One of the boys was from Clearwater and the other from Rull. It was dangerous to have taken so many. She had needed to use the safe house for a few days after capturing them when it seemed she might be found out. But she believed in her heart that she couldn't be caught. In 40 years, she had more or less done as she pleased. Those priests at the safe house had come close, true. But Romola was like the wind. Uncatchable. Unholdable. She was feeling quite pleased with herself and even hummed a little tune as she opened the door to one of the girl's cages. The occupant stood stiffly in her prison, staring straight ahead at nothing, and did not so much as flinch when Romola opened a vein and bled her into a clay bowl. She drew two pints before setting down the bowl and knife, closing the cut and fixing it with a bandage. Still humming, she shut and locked the cage door. For now, the lock was unnecessary. This girl was going nowhere. She couldn't move or even think while under the spell. But Night Mother lifted the Dwemer at night and let the children return to their minds and bodies and the living nightmare of their existence. She enjoyed listening to them sob and cry out for their parents. With the bowl and knife, Romola mounted the stairs to the upper room. She put the knife back on the table and chose a shiny blackwing egg from a collection of dozens of varieties piled haphazardly in a box on the shelf. Then she walked to the door. Night Mother had made a pit, six inches deep, in the mud at her feet. Put the egg in, child. Romola did as she was told. Now pour the blood. Again, Romola obeyed. Night Mother then used her cane to push the mud back over the material components of her spell. It sucked and squelched under the gnarled wooden tip. She drew a symbol in the mud. The design disappeared as quickly as it was drawn, sinking away. As she drew, she mumbled a spell. Romola had never seen this ritual before and felt a little thrill in her belly. That's enormous. The Night Mother completed her spell. Now the charm is firm and good. Now Romola saw movement in the mud. It bulged in a brown bubble glugged up from below and popped with a farting sound. Then another, like a burst blister. Then something shiny and black poked its face out of the slime and, like a newborn, sucked in a breath. It was not a bird as Romola had expected. The face was human-like, but it was a mockery of a human face. The eyes were too small and wide-set. The nose elongated and hooked. Its lips pulled back over a jumble of too many teeth that were pointed like needles. A limb emerged, not an arm, but a wing. Nightmother did not move to help the creature, but let it struggle to escape the muddy nest on its own. It had been small when it first emerged, the size of a crow but it grew before her eyes until it was the size of a human baby. Still, it grew. When it reached the dimensions of a human child, it stopped its unnatural maturation. Taloned feet stretched and glossy black-feathered wings spread, flapping experimentally. Its hideous crone face looked at Night Mother with clear love and devotion and awaited instructions. Hover through the fog and filthy air. 
Find our enemies and kill them all. The monstrous thing did not seem to need any further instructions. It flapped the twins again and sprung into the air, swooping off in the direction of the sawmill. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and would like to lend your support, there are now even more ways to do so. As always, you can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can purchase One Shot in the Dark or pick up Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. And there's something new as well. I'm happy to announce the recent release of Pendulum, a world-building assistant that is designed to help you create the story of a settlement from the very start to about year 500. I use this tool to create the backstory for Camertine, and when Yellowfly gives his little history lesson right before the ad break in this episode, that's Pendulum in action. As always, I'd like to share one of your generous reviews. This one is on Apple Podcasts, and was posted by MC Welsh 311 MC Welsh writes, I recently started this and listened to almost 20 episodes during a very long car ride. This isn't my first D&D podcast, but it has become my favorite. The combination of storytelling, between-the-lines discussion, and the theater of the mind with the dice rolls comes across as compelling and very entertaining. Thanks, Marty. Thanks right back, Marty. To be anyone's favorite, well, anything, is pretty special. You really made my day with that very kind review. So glad I could tag along with you on your road trip. Now, normally, this is where I would thank my amazing cast of voice actors, but... Hey, where have they all gone this episode? Ah, I know. They're probably getting their spooky Halloween costumes together. But I'd like to thank them anyway. Everyone who has ever done a voice for the show, thank you very much. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with me, I'm on the usual socials. At Manticore Tale on Twitter, or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, from maps to musings to crafts to show notes. Have a very happy Halloween, everyone. The adventure will continue in November on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. (laughs) All right, 30 seconds. Start the clock. Do you want to go on grand adventures? Do you long for a soundscape beyond your apartment? Does the crushing burden of capitalist society grind your dreams into dust with glee? Then One Hour One-Offs is the dream dream fixer-upper for you. An hour's worth of uncut escapism awaits in every episode. Vibrant adventure, chilling suspense, egregious buffoonery, and all in enough time to wash your cat yes One Hour one off. stroll across stars, ride against dragons, dance with vampires, free now at all podcasting locations.